Good morning. Thank you. That was so kind. So many of you responded. Uh, welcome. My name is Ryan Doucette. I serve as a youth pastor here at 26 West Church. Uh, and if you're new or you've missed the past few weeks, we've actually taken a slight detour uh, in our series in 1 Corinthians using the issue that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 5 as a launching point to have a longer discussion about sexuality. So this is a series within a series. It's like a dream within a dream. <laughs> Movie reference, that's a favor of mine. So what I wanna do really quick is just give a recap of the last few weeks. We started with explaining the concept of a worldview, pointing out that as followers of Jesus, we're living by a biblical worldview, but in a culture of competing and differing worldviews. We then looked more closely at the issue in 1 Corinthians 5, and we talked about the difference of how we address those within the church family, those that are following Jesus, and the difference of how we might address or handle those outside the church. Last week, Jose gave us a biblical vision and definition of marriage, and shared a statement for marriage and sexuality that we're united under as a church. And I'm gonna review some of that again today. Now one thing I've really appreciated about Jose's leadership in this mini-series is suggesting that we take time to review the whole series. These are not just standalone teachings each week, but they're a collection of teachings that can give us a broader picture of the vision that God gives us in the scriptures for sexuality. And so I've just recapped the last three weeks in a few sentences, but I think it's really important if you've missed any of those teachings to go back and review them. We have six more of these planned, including today's message. So today my task is to look at sexual immorality and to help us have a better understanding of what sexual immorality means when we see it in the scriptures. And just to uh, you know, give a hand to my brother Jose, he didn't skip out on this one <laughs> and say, Ryan, here, here you go. <laughs> he is actually in New York honoring his wife for her 50th birthday, and they are gonna see Hamilton on Broadway, which is something she has longed and waited for. So I'm thankful that my brother and sister could get away and celebrate. Okay, before we dive in, can we pray? Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We need your spirit. You sent us your son, Jesus. And so we look to you as our guide this morning. I was reminded in just our own prayer time that you have the first word and you have the final word. You are the alpha, the omega, the beginning and end. And so today I yield my words to you. Would I, didn't, would I decrease that you might increase? Lord, come and have your way this morning among us. Amen. In 2009, 
I transferred from Portland Community College to Portland State University to finally earn my bachelor's degree. And I say finally because I dropped out of college in 2004, and then I had to go to PCC and earn an associate's because my GPA was so bad I couldn't initially get into PSU. Now, when I did arrive at PSU, I decided to major in English literature, which meant that I needed two years of a foreign language. Now, I had two terms of Spanish, but that was from nine years prior, and it didn't go very well. And I didn't have any sort of affinity to the most commonly studied foreign languages. So I really feared, like, how am I going to get through two years of a foreign language that I could care less to learn? But I had fallen in love with Jesus and with the scriptures, and I found out that PSU actually offered ancient Greek as a foreign language. I thought to myself, I think I'll actually be motivated to study because the New Testament was written in ancient Greek. And so I went to register for Ancient Greek 101, and it was already full. Only room for 35 students. I thought, really, there's so many people that are trying to take Ancient Greek? Sounds pretty hard. Uh, but I was determined to get in, and so I emailed the professor, and I asked if I could come and sit in and see if anyone dropped the course. And she emailed back, like, right away. It was like, she's like at her computer, waiting. She replied very quickly, and she says, of course. She goes, after the first few weeks, they start dropping like flies. <laughs> and you see, she wasn't kidding. <laughs> I did get into the class, and her insight proved to be true. By ancient Greek 203, there were five of us. And I don't tell you this to like pat myself on the back, all right? I barely made it through, and there were definitely some C's along the way. <laughs> C's as in the grade that I received. But what's the point in me sharing that story with you? I think there's a responsibility today as followers of Jesus to really grow in our biblical literacy. At the time that I was taking ancient Greek, becoming a pastor at a local church and teaching the Bible wasn't remotely on the radar. But I was hungry to know God's word better. And the tools today, they are incredible. You don't have to take two years of ancient Greek at PSU to know how to explore the Bible in its original language. But having a deeper understanding in today's world is critical. In my opinion, and based on my work with Gen Z, I think the greatest danger right now, or at least one of the greatest dangers, is not coming from outside the church, it's coming from within the church. There are a number of well-educated, highly convincing Christians who are teaching things about the Bible that are not true. And they're using a rigor of biblical study that many of us have abandoned. So today, today's study is brought to you by Logos. Not really, they didn't like sponsor this message. But in all seriousness, Logos is an incredible free tool that you can download for your computer or phone. There's in-app purchases, but what you get for free allows you to click on any word and trace that word all the way through the Bible to see where it's used and get a better understanding for how the biblical writers are using it. And that's just one of many features. You can scan the QR code, it will take you to the app. I've been using it for like 12 years now, it's incredible. Or, you can use my wife's preferred method, and you can find a concordance, 
like this. How many of you have one of these at home still? Good for you. <laughs> you can take your concordance to a local coffee shop and just spend time writing out the verses while you enjoy a nice cup of coffee. She said I could do that, and I'm going to keep it up here with me while I teach, right? Okay, so to best understand a particular word in the Bible and why I'm bringing this up is that one of the first helpful things we can do is to trace how that word is used throughout the scriptures. Jose did that with marriage last week. We looked at a few key passages in the scriptures where marriage shows up. And today I wanna to look at four places where sexual immorality shows up. And I've done this whole intro so that you will stay locked in because I think this is gonna get boring. But time will tell. <laughs> okay, pornea. Pornea in ancient Greek is what you will typically see in your New Testament translated as sexual immorality. Pornea is a little bit of a unique word in ancient Greek, and that's for a couple reasons. A key reason being that Christianity really brought a new meaning to the word. We can see clear evidence for this simply by looking at how pornea, the ancient Greek word for sexual immorality, how it's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. If you could just pull out your Septuagint this morning, we'll look at the Greek together. Does that sound good? Sorry, I had to. Okay, the New Testament is written in ancient Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. But as ancient Greek became more widely spoken in antiquity, the Jews created an ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, and that's the Septuagint. So in the Old Testament, pornea is always a noun. It's not something you do, it's something that you are based on what you've done. And sometimes the translation actually refers to a literal prostitute. But more often, it is accusing Israel as a nation of being adulterous. That is, of being unfaithful towards God and chasing after other gods. In Genesis 38, we see the first instance of the ancient Greek word porneia in the story of Judah and Tamar. Now, Genesis 38 is pretty graphic, but I think it's actually telling that the scriptures don't skip the hard stuff. Here in the first book of the Bible, we get a story of one of the 12 sons of Jacob, that's Judah, and it's prophesied that the tribe of Judah will ultimately produce the Messiah, Jesus. Now God can move his story forward despite the wickedness of people, and that's what you're gonna see here. Thank you. The background of Genesis 38 is that Judah's sons are wicked. The first is married to a woman named Tamar, but dies due to his wickedness. The second is instructed to take his brother's wife as was custom, but is, he also dies due to his wickedness towards her. And Judah, not wanting to lose the third and last son, withholds Tamar from him. Now this is devastating to Tamar because what you have to understand is in ancient culture like this, a woman's livelihood depended upon marriage. And being twice married, she was almost certainly destined to utter poverty. And so Tamar tricks Judah 
in an extreme effort to avoid this and to protect herself. Judah himself is also a widower without a wife. And one day he is enticed by a prostitute which turns out to be Tamar. And here you have this first instance. Genesis 38 verse 24 says about three months later, Judah was told your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, porneus. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Now, while we see this term used as early as Genesis, perhaps its most prolific use is in the Old Testament in the book of Hosea. Now, Hosea is a prophet of God who is instructed by God to marry Gomer, who is a prostitute. And in doing so, Hosea becomes, quote, from the NIV Bible introduction, a living graphic illustration of God's sorrow and anger at Israel's unfaithfulness in her covenant relationship with God. The book of Hosea plays out what initially seems quite disturbing, but ultimately, it's a remarkable picture displaying the extent of God's love towards his people. Hosea verse two, Hosea chapter two verse two says, rebuke your mother, rebuke her for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulteress or porneon, look from her face and the unfaithfulness, the porneos from between her breasts. Through this living illustration in Hosea, Hosea is actually a picture of God. He represents God in the story. And Gomer, the mother, is referred to here, is a picture of the nation Israel. And the narrator is speaking to Gomer's children who have been given names like Lo Ruhamah, which means not loved, and Lo Ami, which means not my people. You see, the message for the original audience while to us can seem very hard to stomach, it was quite clear, calling out God's own people, the Israelites, for their unfaithfulness, their adulterous behavior, their spiritual idolatry, as they chased after other gods in the very promised land that God led them to. But God simply cannot remain this way towards his chosen people. And just 12 verses later, I want you to read the hope. I want you to hear the hope. Hosea verse, or chapter two, verse 14, and verses 23 say this, therefore I am now going to allure her, that is Israel. I will lead her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. I will plant her for myself in the land, and I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say you are my God. And after this, what does God do? God actually commands Hosea to go and retrieve his wife who has left him and committed adultery. And he wants us to see this as a lived out picture of his heart for all humanity. Hosea 3 verse one says, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. 
So what I want you to see in those two passages is that in the Old Testament, porneia is used interchangeably to identify an actual prostitute or to describe a person or people as being unfaithful. But most often, we see it being used to call out Israel's unfaithfulness. But I also really want you to catch the heart of God in this. God works despite human wickedness. God doesn't abandon his people or his promise. And God is steadfast in his love and faithfulness. Are you still here? Amazing. Let's turn to the New Testament. In the New Testament, in order to understand porneia, we really have to look primarily to Jesus and Paul. 1 Corinthians 5, or 1 Corinthians in, in total is essential for understanding porneia. And is first seen in 1 Corinthians 5, which we've already looked at, where Paul refers to, quote, a man sleeping with his father's wife. And this, for Paul, is defined as sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives a very pointed teaching to the Corinthians about porneia. And we're gonna unpack that passage more fully when we get to 1 Corinthians 6. This morning, what I want you to notice is that Paul weaves into his argument some of the imagery we just looked at in the Old Testament. Paul says this, quote, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, for porneia, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now, Paul doesn't just reference a prostitute because of the Old Testament. You see, the Gentiles, the people that Paul is primarily trying to reach with the good news of Jesus, they didn't have a Jewish understanding or background. In fact, it was culturally acceptable for a Gentile in Roman culture to be married but to actually have a sexual desire and to visit a local brothel and engage in porneia. That was totally fine. This is why Paul and the movement of Christianity actually have to bring new meaning to this ancient Greek word porneia because prior to this moment, it was considered okay. Porneia isn't a bad word. Gordon Fee, an expert on the letter to the first Corinthians provides this insight. He says, quote, it's why porneia appears so often as the first item in the New Testament vice lists. There's a number of, of uh, passages in the New Testament that say, here are a list of things you shouldn't do as a follower of Jesus, and they seem to always start with sexual immorality. And he's saying the, this is why. It's not because Christians were sexually hung up, nor because they considered this the primary sin or the scarlet letter, as it were. Rather, it is the result of its prevalence in the culture and the difficulty the early church experienced with Gentile converts breaking with their former ways, which they had not necessarily heretofore considered immoral. No one says heretofore, but <laughs> thank you, Mr. Fee. 
But I also want you to notice in 1 Corinthians 6 how Paul clearly refers to marriage using the line, quote, and the two will become one flesh. And this brings us to Jesus. Matthew 19 verses one through 12 is a seminal passage in scripture, especially for our cultural moment. I can't emphasize that enough. Jesus reinforces the biblical definition of marriage, pointing back to creation, but more broadly, I believe he teaches what Christian sexuality should look like. There are Christians today that are suggesting that Jesus is silent on many of the sexual issues we're faced with. However, I stand in agreement with many scholars that argue this is Jesus addressing all sexual issues. Now what becomes clear for our purposes is that neither Jesus or Paul can detangle sexual immorality from marriage. And so to me, if we're talking about sexual immorality, we have to look at this passage. Can you turn in your Bibles physically? It's not gonna be on the screens today. Matthew chapter 19, verses one through nine. I'm gonna read it for us from the NIV. And I mentioned all the way through 12, I'm, I'm just gonna read through nine and then I'm gonna point out a few things from, from verse nine. Everyone there? 19 verses one through nine. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. I've already mentioned the significance of this passage and I'm not at all going to give it the time that it needs today. For this morning, I wanna point out two common mistakes we make, both which focus on verse nine. First, I think we've often made the mistake that sexual immorality here only means literal adultery. All of the major modern translations rightfully translate, at this point in time, porneia here as sexual immorality. The NIV, the ESV, the NASB, the CSB, and so on. 
There's been a, even a change. I was looking at my wife's ginormous concordance, and the NASB before 2020 um, did translate it as uh, adultery. So it's an important update. There has been a sense, I think, in the church that Jesus only means literal adultery. But if that were the case, he would have used the word translated adultery that he uses later in the verse. It's a different Greek word than what in your Bibles now says sexual immorality. He doesn't, he uses porneia. And so what this tells us is that sexual immorality in verse nine cannot be limited to literal adultery. It really means sexual sin of any kind. Now, the second mistake that we typically make with verse nine is that if divorce does occur, any preceding marriage puts the new couple in perpetual sin of committing adultery. However, the word for adultery used in the ancient Greek here, like porneia, was regularly used by Jews in the Old Testament to depict spiritual idolatry or unfaithfulness. Thus, adultery here is best interpreted as unfaithfulness to the person to whom we once promised a permanent loyalty. And this unfaithfulness, this adultery occurred not preeminently after you got into this new marriage, it occurred at the moment that the divorce was sealed. It's not an ongoing thing. Is that clear? Because this is a dense, confusing topic. <laughs> Looking at Jared, thank you for your help. One final point, though, is a mistake we make with the whole verse. The clear thrust of Jesus' teaching is not a pathway to divorce. Hear me loud and clear. Jesus has already pointed out that divorce is a result of the hardness of your heart. Craig Blomberg, a well-regarded biblical scholar, he wrote a 37-page exegesis on Matthew 19, verse 1 through 12, that I painfully read through on Thursday. He looks at marriage, divorce, remarriage, and celibacy, and he discusses what is meant by sexual immorality extensively. I'm happy to share it because I actually think it's a really helpful resource. And Craig is able to sum up very clearly and succinctly what Jesus is getting at. He says this, quote, Jesus forbade divorce and remarriage except when sexual sin intruded. Then both divorce and remarriage are permitted, though neither is ever required. Neither is ever required. Restoration always remains preferable. Infidelity does not in and of itself dissolve the marriage covenant, but it does introduce so serious a breach that sometimes relationships prove irreparable. He adds this, that restoration remains the ideal and permanency of marriage the central focus of Jesus' teaching. I want you to think back to what we looked at in the Old Testament. What does God do? He comes back to his people. This is hard, this is a hard word but it has to be said. 
So we've done the biblical groundwork. Are you still here? <laughs> well done. <laughs> what is porneia? What is sexual morality, immorality? And how should we define it today? Our definition must build on the foundation we laid last week in defining marriage. And I'm gonna review two components of that, of what we said last week. We believe that the term marriage has only one meaning, the uniting of one natural born man and one natural born woman in a single exclusive union as delineated in scripture. We believe that God intends sexual intimacy to occur only between a natural born man and a natural born woman who are married to each other. Thus, after looking at the text and these understandings, our definition of what sexual immorality is this. Any sexual activity, any sexual activity that occurs outside the marriage between a natural born man and a natural born woman. Now this seems like a rigid constraint in light of the culture today. In fact, if we just stop here, we are simply not doing justice to the full gospel of Jesus. The good news and the hope that comes from following Jesus. We're only giving a small fragment of the larger story. Before we do that, before we look at the hope, I wanna look at a few dangers. Why does this have to be so rigid? One of the dangers of sexual immorality is that it goes against God's intended design. God created marriage and he created sex. And when we engage in sexual immorality, we are going against God's intended design. And that comes with consequences. Proverbs chapter five and chapter seven both have allusions to the consequences of sexual immorality. It uh, pits wisdom personified in a person against sexual immorality or, or quote, the adulterous woman. And these are concepts that are personified. But the warning here, it, it says this, it says that sexual immorality leads down to death straight to the grave, it gives no thought to the way of life. The second danger is that we can believe that sexual immorality is no different than any other sin. John Tyson, in a teaching entitled Sexual Formation, part of a series called The Controversial Jesus, another resource I'd highly recommend, makes the point that a common lie we believe is that all sins are the same, at least in terms of the threat that they pose to us. But you see, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that sexual sin is different. James emboldens every believer, resist the devil and he will flee from you. As a follower of Jesus, you actually have the power to resist Satan, who is the one leading the rebellion against God. That's incredible. You have the power to resist Satan. Peter agrees with this. He adds in, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. The Bible is consistent. You have the power to resist Satan. Stand firm in your faith. 
because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. But when it comes to sexual immorality, to porneia, Paul tells us to flee. Quote, flee from sexual immorality. He doesn't say resist. He doesn't say try to fight it. He says to flee. Not only for the danger that it poses in our ability to resist, we can't, but he says this, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. As I already mentioned, we're gonna unpack that more fully in the weeks to come, but for now, I simply want us to see that the scriptures give clear guidance. We can resist the devil, but when it comes to sexual sin, we are clearly told to flee. But while there are dangers, there is also hope. We'll eventually cover 1 Corinthians 7 in our series two, but if you're familiar with that passage or uh, if you read ahead, it can almost seem as if Paul's solution to sexual immorality is simply to get married. And again, that just is not the full picture. If sexual immorality is any sexual activities that, that occurs outside the marriage between a natural born man and a natural born woman, then as Jesus followers, what we're after isn't simply sexual morality. Because what hope does that offer to those who are single? What about to our youth? Marriage is actually meant to be a picture for the church of the intimacy that is possible for all believers, married or single. The intimacy that we as believers can have with our Heavenly Father. In the same article I referenced from Craig Blomberg, he points out that, quote, sexual relations do not by themselves make a marriage. You might be thinking, well, duh, but I think it's really important that we say this. That's why viewing marriage as the fix for sexual desire is flawed. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 19, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Marriage is not only the two will become one flesh, it's also to leave father and mother and become united to your spouse. There are two things that happen. That is why marriage is not dependent upon even sexual sin coming into the picture. You can still come and back to that being united together. It's only when you, one of you has said, I'm forsaking this as well. And Paul uses similar language when speaking of every believer's unity with Jesus. He says, we are, quote, united with the Lord, one with him in spirit. Our deepest longing will not be fulfilled once we get married and live within the bounds of sexual morality. Your deepest longing will not be fulfilled 
even within the confines of a healthy marriage. Our deepest longing will be fulfilled when we recognize the intimacy that we all have access to in Jesus and in the community of believers. I have to say this, not even in my notes. In Genesis 1, God says it's not good for the man to be alone. And it has been argued that (laughs) he's referring to sexual intimacy, and that couldn't be further from the truth. God is saying it's not good to be alone. We need community. We need others that are like us. Your deepest longing will be fulfilled in the intimacy of Jesus and the community of believers. Look, we all have desires, desires that God has placed within us by design, but I am not at liberty to simply seek out fulfillment of all my desires, nor should we believe the lie of the modern philosopher, Willy Wonka who at the end of the movie looks at Charlie with eyes full of hope and says, don't forget what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he ever wanted. And Charlie said, what happened? He lived happily ever after. We have seen that play out as completely false. Do you know what happens when we submit our desires to Jesus? we actually find life. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for the sake of me will find it. You want to find life this morning, deny yourself and chase after him. In fact, he even adds, I love that he adds this, thank you, Jesus. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? You could have it all, but forfeit your soul. We see that played out constantly in Hollywood, in sports, the rich and the famous, those that recognize once they have gained it all, they are missing something of eternal value that only an eternal God can fill. I love this quote by Christopher West in his book, Fill These Hearts. It says, quote, since we have been designed for infinite bliss, we are radically dependent upon a God to satisfy us. Just as God invited Adam and Eve into a relationship of trust to orient their hunger towards him and believe that he will satisfy their ache, we must trust that God will satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. That's the hope. Now as I close this morning and we move towards response, I have to share a little bit of my story because you see, I have failed in this area. I bear the scars of poor choices in my past and they're scars that I have to live with today. 
I recently heard someone say, quote, the God of the universe believes that scars are important enough to bring into eternity. Jesus comes, the risen Jesus comes to the disciples and says, look, touch. Now I'm not proud of my scars, but I hope that they can be a lesson of hope and healing. The scars are a reminder that wounds can heal. They're lessons for a past that I have no desire to repeat, nor do I wish for any follower of Jesus to experience. Too much of my life was spent chasing down fulfillment and longing that only Jesus could satisfy. In my past, I've had to come to my wife and confess. And confession not only leads to forgiveness, but it's also the path to healing. The word confession today can have a lot of baggage, but it's simply sharing what's really going on. My question to you is, will you let someone in on what's really going on? Will you let them know what you've really been struggling with? What you're really up to when no one's looking? The Bible has two really important statements about confession. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We're really good as a people at confessing our sins to God and being forgiven. But James 5 verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We're really good at the first and not so good at the second. Can I suggest today that what it might look for some of you here to flee sexual immorality is when you get home to immediately confess to your spouse. It's both men and women. Perhaps your response this morning is even more immediate and you need to come forward and confess to someone right now. It doesn't even have to be just sexual sin, it could be anything. God's faithful to forgive, confessing to one another opens up healing. How many, us, how many of us are walking around unhealed? In fact, let me say this, I, I think we sometimes long for the ax type healing. Why aren't people getting up out of wheelchairs and walking? And I don't know if this is fact, but it sounds like God. I think in our Western world, the healing we need is mental health. Eating disorders, depression, anxiety, addiction. 
Maybe confessing one to another will heal us of things that have been plaguing us in our brains. If you're to confess this morning even, you don't have to get into specifics. But don't let a moment pass where the Spirit is nudging you to do this. And I pray that this goes into the coming weeks. We have a men's gathering tomorrow, another chance to confess to one another. In youth, we're meeting in small groups and we're looking at a biblical picture of sexuality and it's a chance to confess to one another and be healed. What if we were a church that regularly practiced confessing to one another and people were getting healed all over the place? It might look more like a hospital, which I I think Jesus said something about that, to come and heal the sick. Forgiveness and healing is what's on offer. Freedom from the bondage of sin. Or maybe you are here this morning and you have yet to taste the eternal. God's heart was so big towards humanity that he fought for not just Israel, but the whole world. He became one of us. He was tempted in every way as we've been and yet never gave in to sin. The reason that any of us can confess our sins and be forgiven in the sight of God is because Jesus took the penalty for us on the cross. And he rose and he defeated death and bearing scars of hope for our healing and reconciliation to our creator. Don't let another moment pass without saying yes to Jesus. You can do that this morning with our prayer team whether it's confession, whether it's a prayer for a need, whether it's, I need this eternal life. Come and respond this morning, not to me, but because God is speaking. Would you close your eyes and and pray with me? God, my prayer is simple as we respond is just for courage. Would you withhold any power of the evil one? We need you. We need your healing. We need your forgiveness. Help us to find our deepest longing this morning in you, Jesus. And so by the power of your spirit, would you stir us this morning to respond?